So, our main subject this morning is going to be a summary of our studies in Nehemiah. You know, I'm amazed the number of times I follow Rob on a Sunday morning when he said something during his opening up that fits what I want to say. You know, he mentioned to us that he often wonders whether what was said to the Corinthians has any application to us. Well, Rob, I'll give you a verse that it does, because Paul says five times in 1 Corinthians, and so I teach in all the churches. So what he was teaching the Corinthians is for us all. He also says in the book of Romans that the things that were written before were written for our learning. And that's where we're going to be this morning, a little bit later on, just reviewing some of the lessons that we've picked up as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah. And I think it's good for us to, on occasions, just stop and ask, you know, what have we actually picked up in the Bible teaching that we've been having? But before we do that, I'm just going to show you a few photographs. First of all, this is the only one I've got from Poland. But uh, these people here, this one and this one, used to be in the fellowship here. And actually, Sophie was reminding me, this is Sophie, Sophie was reminding me, though I can't see it on the photograph, that she still has a mark of Land of North on her forehead. Some of you will remember that, this is a lesson for you, Eli, she was running round in here and she bumped into the platform that used to be here. Actually, it was quite a long way back because the baptistry was in front of the platform. Anyway, uh, she bumped into the platform and she split her, her uh, forehead open and she's still got the mark today, even though she's nearly 40. Uh, so I just, I put a pic, this is, Joe's baby, whose name is actually Anichka. And uh, she, uh, <laughs> she's quite a remarkable little girl. Uh, she's 13 months old. She is learning English and Polish, but actually she's signing uh, more than she's actually speaking at the present moment. She's quite a, quite a strong character. Because whenever Joe says to her, say mummy, she says daddy. Uh, so th this is uh, Sophie's husband, Michal, and this is Joe's husband, Tamash. They've been married about two years now. And uh, they said to me to say to everybody at Land of North, even those they don't know, hi. And uh, they're looking forward to coming and seeing us sometime soon. Anyway, my main purpose in the second part of my journey uh, was to go into Ukraine. Uh, this is the van, or one of the two vans, that a good friend of Paul and mine, whose name is Timek, I'm not going to try to pronounce his surname, it's one of these Polish names that's as long as this. Uh, he, he has bought these vans very interesting. This one's got a very interesting number. You see there, KWCH, that's actually the Polish abbreviation of the Brethren Assemblies in Poland. And uh, he's got this, where on earth he got it with this cherished number plate, I really don't know. That's the van that we went in. That's how full it was. 
I asked Marek, is it, is it, is it legally full? No, he says it's twice over, but they let us take it twice over in. So that was the van that we took. We went first to Lviv, like Paul particularly and Susan will know everybody in this picture really well. Victor was here with us at Lambeth North uh, on, a, on a couple of occasions, but this is the, the family that we went to this couple here, it was their house, Tolek and Lesia Satsai, and uh, they were delighted we were there. In fact, Lesia said to us, one of the wonderful things is you've been here more than one hour. She said, most of the people who drop stuff off, they only come for an hour. We just so value being able to talk to you and having fellowship with you. Tolek, the husband, is very much involved in a massive aid effort that goes through to Harkiv. Harkiv, you may know, is right on the front line. And there are lots of villages there, and Tolek and his team have got big contacts with them. This is Tolek's garage. The only way he can shut the door is to put his car there. That's actually his car, the front of his car. It's amazing that they don't get stuff stolen but they've had nothing stolen at all. And this is one load that actually we purchased um, with the fund, or was purchased with the funds that we have been able to send out to them and it's on its way to Kharkiv. This is another van that's actually outside Tollick's house that's also got a load in, also on its way going to Kharkiv. And uh, Tollick is doing a phenomenal work and Lesia too, because those who drive the vans, they actually come by train from Kharkiv, pick up the vans and take them to Kharkiv, bring the van back, go back by train, and then when it's uh, loaded, then they take it out. The train line actually runs behind their house. Um, if you're not good at sleeping, you have a problem there. I've always slept. <laughs> <laughs> I also went to the warehouse of Christian Medical Association. We, I'd never met this fellow in the flesh, or perhaps we did meet him once, didn't we, in the flesh? Uh, but he's not someone I knew very well, but he's a quite remarkable character. He's, a, he's actually a, a specialist in neurosurgery, but he's actually given all that up uh, at the present moment because he's organizing medical aid for all over Ukraine. That's him there. His name is Rudy. He loves collecting <coughs> souvenirs of the war. There's one of them. That's a, a Russian rocket, the bottom half. And he actually gave this to me. That there, that's an ammunition case. And I, I was puzzled. Why is what is written on it in English, not in Russian? And I've got the answer. It's because the Russians make a lot of artillery shells and, uh, and so on, which they send to African nations where they speak English. So actually, the ammunition case that Rudy gave me is in Poland, and it will probably stay there. <laughs> so, we went after having looked at this phenomenal ministry that's going on uh, in uh, the Christian Medical Association warehouse, 
Uh, we, we went to Lutsk, which is the place that I guess I know best of all. Perhaps I should just say one thing for your prayers. The Christian Medical Association has been given all the equipment that was in the Nightingale hospitals in London. It is millions of pounds worth. The problem is getting it from London to Lviv. Pray about it. We're not sure how it's going to happen yet, but we were in discussions with Rudy and we've handed it on to Amy. It's his job now to make sure that we can get this stuff from London uh, to Lviv. This is the team in the church in, uh, in Lutsk. And it has, the team has changed enormously since I was last there three years ago. This fellow here and his wife are very much the leaders there. His name is Sasha, her name is Jana, and uh, they are leading all the ministries that are there in the church. It's basically their elders and their deacons. Uh, there are two others. Uh, one was sick when we were there and one was away uh, on a trip. But those who are leading the work are led by this well, he's a young man, he's 39, uh, and his wife, and they're doing a great job. This is the only one who's there from the past. His name's Jura. Uh, he's quite a character. He's doing a ministry amongst older uh, people. So I could tell you what each one of them does, but time doesn't permit. But they're a team of young people who are seeking to do an amazing work for God. Now... <laughs> One of our aims was actually to, was to take all the aid that we took in there because they have great need in the Bolin region, very great need because they've got thousands of displaced people living there. I did say to Tollick, why are you sending everything to Harkiv? He said, well, that's my burden. So I said, okay, well, my burden is to take something to Bolin because they desperately need it. So there we are, that's filling up that that van, which was actually purchased with Philadelphia Trust funds, and uh, this is Sasha filling it up, and uh, this material was going to the extreme west, uh, to Zauzerna, where Gabby's nephew, son, nephew, cousin, I can never remember which it is, where Michael took it, and uh, so he's taken stuff there as well. They are in great need. We also, this isn't a bomb, we also took a generator uh, because a couple we know who are serving close to Kiev need a generator for their ministry in Earsong. So this is it starting its journey. I have to say, it's not going to go all the way on a handcart, but uh, uh, that's it starting its journey. I, they were running a holiday Bible club. It was actually a, a holiday week uh, in, um, in Lutsk, and this is the holiday Bible club. Uh, that I, I went along, they asked me to speak, and uh, it was great to see the kids there. Then on the, they, this is another feature of their church, it's a big church, there are about 700 in, in, in the church, but they, they have home groups, and the home groups study the Bible together once or twice a week, and this is uh, one of those home groups, that's Sasha taking the photograph, but just to mention, before I finish, one other person, this young lady here, she is a doctor, 
she's a quite remarkable doctor. She won uh, just before the war the prize for being the best new young doctor in Ukraine. She she is doing a phenomenal work uh, in in looks, but she also is involved in going out on their mobile medical mission station. It's a it's made up of a number of vans, uh, and they go into areas of difficulty. She was asking that we would pray for her because she's still not 100% sure whether she should stay in Lutsk or whether she should volunteer for the medical, military medical service and go to the front line. She goes to the front line quite often, um, not, on the, uh, not on the military side, but she goes to help people uh, after their areas have been bombed and so on. Just to say, when I was there, I saw no place anywhere that had been bombed or rocketed or anything like that. In the west of Ukraine, the only issue appears to be the occasional rocketing, but the occasional rocketing is of Lviv, but not the residential area of Lviv. It's the area where the BBC and other um, television and radio stations are uh, being developed. They also aim for the uh, railway lines. But they haven't had any problems in Lviv now for over two months. They've also got electricity all the time there. So there are quite a few redundant generators. Well, they're kind of redundant, but actually it's much cheaper to to make power yourself using a can of petrol than it is um, using the local system. So they're, they're debating what they're going to do. So it was great to be with them. It was great to support them. Those who know you, that's just uh, Victor and Ira, send their love. And uh, those who uh, know, those of us in the Philadelphia Trust, they send their love as well. I just want to pick up a few of the things that have struck me as uh, we have been involved in this program uh, in the book of Nehemiah and ask the question, you know, what are the key lessons? I was, I was thinking I might give you all a test this morning, you know, give you all out a sheet of paper and say, what are the key things that you have learnt uh, in the book of Nehemiah, but I thought I'd be kind. So instead of doing that, I just want to bring before you some of the things that have really struck me as we have done this study. Well, beginning at the beginning, the issue of prayer. You know, when we opened our study of the book of Nehemiah, we read this verse. Hanani, one of my brothers, Nehemiah's brothers, came from Judah with some men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. What we learn about Nehemiah, the first thing we learn about him is how desperately concerned he was about the people of God who were in a dark and difficult situation. Yes, that's how I feel, and I guess many of us feel, about our brothers and sisters uh, in, in the Ukraine. They are in a dark and difficult situation. 
He was concerned about the witness of God there because the, because the walls of the city were broken down and as a result of that, they weren't able to worship as they should. So what does he do? Well, he prays. And you know, his prayer is very selfless. He wasn't living in the land of Judah, but he doesn't say, Lord, they've messed up in Judah. No, he says, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Even though he wasn't there, he associated totally with the people who were. And having prayed to God, we learn in chapter 1, to do something about the problem, we learn that Nehemiah was ready to do his bit. And actually, the bit that he was ready to do was exceedingly dangerous because he was ready to go into the presence of the king and he was the only one who could do it he was the only Jew who could do it he was the only Jew who had access to the presence of the king so it's not just Nehemiah praying and saying okay Lord it's up to you I think sometimes we're a bit like that, aren't we? We pray to God, will you do this? And we don't ask what we should do. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah is ready to act and go into the presence of the king. And one other thing we learn about him was that when he goes into the presence of the king, he prays. It's the shortest prayer in scripture. You look at it in chapter 2. It's a prayer with no words. He prays. Then he moves into the planning stage, which is very much a responsibility we all have to thank. We all have to think about. So what planning does Nehemiah do? Well, he had access to the king. So he uses that access and he asks the king for the things that he knew the king could provide. You can see on the screen, Nehemiah 2 verse 7, he wanted letters of safe conduct that would take him through trans-Euphrates until he got to Judah. And then he knew when he got there, he'd got a job to do. And he knew that the king could help him. So he asks the king. And then he says something quite remarkable, doesn't he? The last part of verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king, the king granted my requests. So he prays, chapter 1 chapter 2, and then he starts the planning process. He starts using what God has given him for the blessing of others. Now, 
that planning process was a pretty daunting one. He makes his way around the city. Read chapter 2, it's a very interesting story. <clears throat> he kept it secret from everybody else. Just a few of his close associates are allowed to go, allowed to go with him. He doesn't ride on a great big horse, which would have been his right as the person who was now the governor uh, of Jerusalem, but he goes on a donkey. Why does he go on a donkey? Because that's the only way he's going to get round and be able to get amongst all this rubble and rubbish that's there. So he goes out, he assesses the whole situation, and having assessed the whole situation, very interestingly, he doesn't say what a number of people have said in Scripture before, when I see how big the task is, it's too big for me. You know, the spies, when they went out to the land in went out and looked at the land in Nehemiah, in Numbers 13 and 14, they say, problem's too big. We can't do anything about it. But actually, Nehemiah doesn't do that. He goes out, and constantly he has in his mind, my God is bigger than me. My God is bigger than the problem. But not only does he say, I understand my God is bigger than the problem. He's ready to say it to everybody else. Now, I find that challenging. You know, often we can say, I know God is bigger than the problem. But do we set out to encourage others to believe that my God is bigger than the problem. Nehemiah does. You see, he doesn't say, look, it, it's only a little problem. No, he recognises in verse 17 how big the problem is. We're in trouble, he says. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The gates have been burned with fire. What's our responsibility? rebuild. Not an easy task. Let's do it. And what's the evidence, says Nehemiah, that we can do this task? Listen, this is the evidence. God is gracious to me. I have personal experience, says Nehemiah, of the grace of God. What is it, he says? Well, it's what the king had said to me. Listen, says Nehemiah, we can do this. I've been into the presence of the emperor. And when I was in the presence of the emperor, I spoke with him. Oh, I know full well that the emperor could have condemned me to death like that. You know, you read the book of Esther and you will see how vicious an emperor it was who was on the throne in the days of Nehemiah. 
someone who thought nothing about sending a man from his presence to be impaled on a spike and killed. That's the kind of emperor he was. But that's not what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah went faithfully into the presence of the emperor because he knew God was with him. And he asked him, please give me letters of safe conduct. Please give me wood from the forests. So he says, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. He tells us just exactly what his review looked like. Yes, broken down. He wasn't trying to do a task he didn't understand and that's important in our planning too. So, he prays, he makes a request, he encourages people to get involved and then they get involved. And it's very interesting, I'm not going to go through all I said on chapter 3 when we had the session on chapter 3 but I'm just going to point out a quite amazing thing Nehemiah encouraged people to get involved and clearly it's quite remarkable that Nehemiah 3 verse 1 tells us the first people who got involved were the high priests high priest you know I guess normally he if he used his hands for anything it was making the anointing oil but the truth is he also now used his hands as a leader rebuilding the wall I find it very interesting I did mention this before in the study the person building the next bit of the wall were the men of Jericho. They were exactly the opposite from the high priest. They were people who were actually under a curse for the men of Jericho. But Nehemiah inspired people, whatever their backgrounds, to get on and do the task. Now, the truth was, as they were doing the task, the enemy came to attack. And you know, we can be sure that whatever we do for God, we'll get attacked. They tried to get Nehemiah to compromise to begin with, but he refused. They tried to threaten him, but he didn't bow. To that, those sets of threats. But there was still a problem there. So what does Nehemiah do? He uses his resources wisely. Half of them were building. The other half were defending. And you know, it's a lesson to us that we need to recognise the enemy. We need to do what we can so that we can 
build for the glory of God. So what did that enemy look like? Well, actually, there were two enemies. First one, great friend of Jasper's. Remember Jasper talking about Sanballat? Yes. <coughs> Jasper, by the way, someone who's normally here, but they're away doing a long-distance run in Liverpool today. But uh, Jasper asks us a lot of questions about Sanballat, the greatest op opponent uh, here of Nehemiah. Nehemiah recognised what they were saying about him. So what does he do? What would we do? What should we do when we're under attack? What did he do? Pray. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Yeah, it's great to see just exactly how Nehemiah dealt with the opposition from outside. Two things. Number one, he prayed about it. Number two, he set up a defense. But you know, Satan is very clever, exceedingly clever. Because he also attacked from inside the nation. And here we get just a snippet of the attack from inside the nation. What happened was those who had wealth were using it to actually enslave many of the Israelite people. Something they should never have done. Something that was completely against the law of God. But they did it. So what did they do? They complained to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah responds. Look at his response number one. He was very angry. Yes. When he saw something that was wrong, it affected him. Then he thought about what he should do. It's a good lesson in problem solving, you know. He didn't jump in both feet at the beginning. He was angry. He thought about it. And then he acted. And then as we make our way towards the end of our study, we learn that it was okay just to deal with the immediate problem. But what about the future? So he got them reading the Word of God. We read about that in chapter 8. Paul particularly spoke to us on the reading of the Word of God. What is very interesting is after having read the word of God a great deal, there was an effect. And the effect was that many of the people were weeping. 
Because the word of God actually touched their hearts. Now, I challenge myself. Challenge you. As we read the Bible, what effect does it have upon us? This had a huge effect. They realised they'd failed. Just stop and think. These people who realised they'd failed had been amazingly faithful in leaving captivity and going back to the land. But they realised they hadn't got it all right. And they wept as they listened to the law. They reacted to their failure. But using scripture, Nehemiah goes to them and Nehemiah says, listen, there is a path to recovery. Later in chapter 9, they actually go through, we touched it two weeks ago, they do actually begin a process of repentance. But before they get, get involved in the process of repentance, they are told about a wonderful feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast where everybody gives presents to each other, showing how great God is. And they keep this Feast of Tabernacles. You may remember I mentioned that, uh, you know, up in the Kinkoy district of Cardiff, you can still see people keeping this feast today, even though most of the people there, as we well know, have got beautiful houses. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they live outside they live in kind of wooden shelters. <coughs> this is what happened in the days of Nehemiah. They lived in shelters made from branches that they went into the forests and cut down. And they learnt that despite the fact the enemy was outside, they were safe in those shelters because God was with them. And at the same time as staying outside and recognising the protection of God, they recognised the goodness of God as they gave presents to each other. Because they recognised that the joy of the Lord is your strength. The final message for me as we've been through this study is how important it is to be positive as we seek to live for God. We have every reason to be positive, don't we? Because God has given us everything. Again, Rob asked us to focus on the love of God this morning. A love that we don't deserve. But God has given it to us. What a wonderful thing to be positive. God. So there are a few of the lessons as we have worked through the book of Nehemiah. So we'll be taking a break from the Old Testament uh, in the next few months. Next week, of course, we will be welcoming our Hungarian team with us and I've asked them to uh, 
prepare a video so that you can all understand something about where they come from. And of course, the week, the week that follows will be our, will be our outreach. Then we move up to Easter, where Dave Hunter is going to be responsible for the message then related to the Holy Bible Club. Then we'll be starting a new series of studies as we look at some lessons from the New Testament. So let's just pray, shall we? Our God and Father, we pray that the lessons that we have seen in the book of Nehemiah might be real for each one of us. Our God and our Father, our prayer life will be more affected, our planning life will be more affected, how we deal with problems will be more affected. We pray, our God and our Father, that each one will put our joy in the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So, Father, we ask for your blessing upon us now, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.